Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in once again to Built to Win. I'm your host of the day, Victoria Erdley, and today we're discussing some big moves that states are making regarding unemployment and federal COVID incentives. So I'm joined by FGA's resident unemployment expert, Joe Horvath, or as we lovingly call him, UI Joe. Thanks for coming back on the show, Joe. Thanks, Victoria. Though I got to tell you, with the UI Joe nickname, I don't think they'll be making action figures anytime soon. Oh, that would be great. I'd love to have an unemployment action figure. I don't know if he'd ha- be in much action, though, if he's unemployed, to be honest. The problem with those toys is they never work. True, true. We'll get into that in just a second. Recently, states have taken action regarding UI. And for our listeners out there, UI is the abbreviation for unemployment insurance. And you might hear us say it a couple times throughout this episode. I really encourage you to take a look back at one of our previous episodes, What is Unemployment Insurance? I believe it's episode two. So to get a better understanding about how the program works and all of the terms that people use when describing this often confusing joint federal and state unemployment program, I promise it's worth the time. Give it a listen. It's actually one of our most listened to and downloaded episodes so far. So I promise it's a great listen. Go back and listen when you get the chance. But getting back to you, Joe... Joe, tell me, what have states been doing in just the past two to three weeks regarding unemployment? Sure. Before I hop into that, though, I'm going to also plug that episode only because I was the guest for it. So, uh, you know, I also agree. Go down and uh, listen to it. No (laughs) shame at all. But in terms of uh, recent news on the unemployment front, we all know that the federal unemployment boost that was originally conceived as part of CARES and was extended recently from the American Rescue Act at a slightly lower amount has been at the forefront of a lot of state policymakers' minds for a lot of reasons. One of the things we've seen most common, and every trade association is saying this, businesses are saying this, polling comes back, and it's all very consistent. You can find hundreds of news stories. You know, Businesses are reporting a difficulty finding employees as they try to reopen, in some cases, just keep their doors open reopen the economy, reopen their business, and employ people with good-paying jobs, they've been having some difficulty filling those jobs. So, you know, responding to this concern, governors, because this partnership for the CARES Act was a state and federal partnership that was voluntary, as long as you give 30 days notice to the United States Department of Labor, you can opt out. These governors are making the right move, and in order to jumpstart their economy, get these businesses the labor they need, and help people reduce the dependency on these programs, they've been opting out at a pretty remarkable rate. In the past two or three weeks, we've seen more than 20 states opt out. And it looks like we're going to get more and more as we head into September when this naturally ramps down. But I think it's smart because states don't want to wait until September. They want to get started now. So let me take it back just a couple steps. This bonus, so you mentioned the CARES Act. How much was it then? How much is it now? And what are governors choosing to opt out of, maybe in a dollar amount? Sure. So there were a few programs that were created, but the magic number was $600, basically. So it was, if you were on traditional unemployment compensation, you would get what you got through your state, plus $600. If you were someone who was unemployed, but not traditionally eligible for state unemployment, you would just get the $600. So what was happening, and and by the way, the vast majority of workers in America fall into that first category where they would be, you know, a traditional, what you would call a W-2 employee. So traditionally eligible if they were laid off. 
if you're not you, traditional, what would you, what type of job would you have? Independent contractor, what they would mm. you know, colloquially mm. call a 1099, uh, self-employed. And, and the challenge with that, actually, if I can go on a bit of a detour, the challenge with the way that was set up was initially, including with the incentive to hop onto it being $600, there were very few guardrails put in place. So people would kind of just pinky swear that, yeah, I'm an independent contractor for this establishment and uh, I'm out of work. So, you know, give me $600, please. And Mm -hmm. what we were seeing, unfortunately, were cases all over the country where businesses this year were getting notices saying, oh, hey, you know, this individual said that they were a 1099, you know, independent contractor that did work for you. Is that true? This is obviously months down the line and the businesses, you know, I can share one anecdote from a business in Ohio where they said, no, absolutely not. And they went to fill out the form online to dispute the claim. And the claim itself didn't have the forms or the, uh, the fields necessary to fill out the information to dispute it. So the whole process was very difficult. We've seen in Ohio specifically huge levels of fraud. So that's a bit of an aside. Those so how does that affect some of those people's taxes? I'm a bit curious considering that I believe that the tax date was just two days ago or this week um, once it was extended like it was last year as well. In normal unemployment, unemployment benefits are taxable. And it's part of the way the system was originally designed because the system's original design is about reemployment. So the incentives that are baked into it are, one, you don't get unemployment unless you've been working. Two, you can't continue to claim unemployment unless you're seeking work. And three, it's a limited amount that gets taxed anyway. And that's kind of the behavioral nudge that gets people back to work. What the American Rescue Act did, unfortunately, was, you know, went back and said, yeah, unemployment's always been taxable. Now it's not for this past Mm. pandemic. So, you know, I understand the motivation behind it on some level. You want to reduce sort of economic harm. But the reason unemployment was designed the way it was, was because it was all about the next job. And it just seems like at every turn from Capitol Hill, the decisions have been made to sort of break that dynamic. And it's been unfortunate. And that's why so many states have had to take it on themselves and start making the right decision about opting out. Regarding these opt-outs, FGA just put out some new research very recently showing that you can make $3,700 a month sitting at home on unemployment, just collecting. Is that correct? Because that amount's really striking to me. And this is with the $300, not the $600. That's right, Victoria. That's with the $300. And I got to tell you, uh, shout out to FGA's research team. They are absolutely fantastic. And what they did was that is only looking at cash type benefits. So that's your unemployment and that's things like uh, uh, food stamps and, and EITC. And basically added that up and found that for an individual not working, in most states, you're going to be making more than the median income to be paid to not work. I think striking is the word, unfortunately. So when you hear people raising the question of, well, is this, is this an incentive to not work? Well, yeah. If you're getting 100 to more than 100% of your income to not work, you're just making a rational decision, right? Mm-hmm. So people respond to incentives. And unfortunately, there's been a real bad set of incentives out there for a while now. So let's talk about those incentives for a second. When you stay on unemployment, how do you do it? and work search requirements. What are those in the first place? Ah, all right. So that's a, that's a tale of two cities, unfortunately. So we have 
we'll go through traditional, right? So traditionally, the way it works is federal law says because the federal government oversees state programs, states administer them. It's a bit of a refresher from the last episode. Federal law says an individual to be eligible has to be laid off through no fault of their own. And they also have to be able to work, available to work, and actively seeking work. And the way that kind of gets manifested is through work search requirements. Basically, when you file your claim every week with the state, usually it's an online form. You'll check the box and says, you know, in Florida, it's five employer contacts. Uh, In other states, the threshold is a little different. And it's, did you look for work this week? And, you know, if you were unsuccessful, you can continue claiming. If you were, you know, received a job offer of suitable work, you accept it. And if you don't accept it and you refuse it, you're now disqualified because implicitly, if you refuse the offer of suitable work, that means you're not actively seeking work. Otherwise, you would have taken the job. So what what does suitable work mean? I know there's a little bit of discrepancy there. And we've seen a lot of, truthfully, some excuses coming out of the left about people can't find suitable jobs for them once they've been on unemployment for so long. So tell me about that term suitable a little bit. It's a real basic reasonableness standard. It's okay. you know typically going to be defined a little bit different in the states. Some states have different, slightly different tests for defining it. But it's basically, if I can give you sort of a rule of thumb ballpark, we're talking if you're between, I don't know, 70 to 80% of the earning potential of your previous job, if the job that's been offered does not pose a serious threat to your, you know, health and safety. So for example, the, the you're not going to be forced to sort of pick up used needles on the side of the road. If somebody offers you a job doing that, you can reasonably turn it down because it's unsafe working conditions. Um, Makes sense. Reasonable geographic, exactly. Reasonable geographic distance. So, you know, if you get offered a job that's five hours away, you probably won't be expected to take that. But if it's 10 miles, yeah, possibly, probably. Again, it's a little different state to state, but the best way to approach it and the best way to think about it is a reasonableness standard. So going back to work search requirements, if I was an applicant for unemployment and a work search requirement was in place, how do I show that I'm searching for work in a lot of these states? <laughs> you have identified one of the biggest issues with unemployment traditionally. Really interesting. And it, was, <laughs> it was exacerbated. It's almost like you do this for a living. Yeah. Uh, and it was only exacerbated during CARES. So typically in a normal unemployment world, the most common form of unemployment fraud comes from the fact of an individual not really doing their work searches. And the way they get away with that is USDOL only requires state agencies to perform a few hundred audits a year. And that's Mm. really only for statistical purposes, not necessarily for catching people and and stopping fraud. That's so that they can get a, a sample of the improper payments so that then they can report to the federal government to say sort of what's your uh, states improper payment rate so that we can have our projections because there's a 10% threshold. Now, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There's a 10% requirement, though it's kind of toothless. There's not really a penalty for not hitting it. About half the states do, about half the states don't. And during CARES, they kind of suspended some of those measurements for a while. And I think if they hadn't, you'd see a number that is far, far higher than 10% for basically every state. But the way the work search works is since the states aren't tracking you every single week, it's, you know, uh, scout's honor, pinky swear, any way you want to put it. You fill out a form, and typically what the state will tell you is you keep your own records of the employers you contacted or the jobs you've worked on, and we will reserve the right to audit you. And, you know, 
different states have different commitments to combating fraud and stopping things. I know one state, South Carolina, they put in a lot of work on this. So if it gets to a point where an individual is sort of nearing their end of their benefits, they'll get really involved to the point where it's almost handholding, where they say, all right, we're going to connect you with an employer who's looking for someone like you. We are going to set up a job interview. And, you know, if you don't show up, we're taking you off benefits. These are the kind of solutions that that more proactive states come up with. But, you know, rule of thumb is in most states, it's going to be you're required to look for work, keep your own records, but we're not really going to make you prove you did anything. Ah, oh, makes sense. So they these states and the federal government last year, height of the pandemic, they not only stopped the improper payments or checking these audits, a lot of these audits and what's going on there, but also a lot of these states stopped their work search requirements. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So as part of CARES, the federal government said, all right, states, typically it is federal law that individuals have to be actively seeking work as proven through work search records. We're going to temporarily waive that. The reasoning being that they wanted to encourage individuals to shelter in place to reduce the spread of COVID. On some level, I understand, but on another, it's very possible to do work searches without ever getting off your couch. And there were proposals uh, that were sent around where in lieu of traditional work searches, they could have done education or training in concert with the state workforce agency, I think would have been a better substitute. But the long and short of it is about 40 states ceased requiring work searches for unemployment benefits. So the vast majority of states. And as a result, that kind of took individuals out of having any real connection to the labor force for a while, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, even Mm -hmm. if you're not working, if you're looking for work, you still kind of feel attached, you're motivated, you're doing something, you're looking. This was a case where uh, circumstances were set up where individuals were basically incentivized to do as little as possible. And again, nothing against them. They're just responding to incentives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So right now, May 2021, what have states done with these work searches? I think we're getting back to normal. We've got a lot of things moving in the right direction. Have any states kind of reneged on that and restarted their work search requirements? And, and if so, what, what states are those? Uh, Victoria, a lot of states are going back to the normal work search pattern. I can tell you that if states like Maine and Rhode Island want people back looking for work again, that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, as goes the really loose states, so goes the rest of them, right? So the the states that are typically more committed to reducing fraud and making sure people are looking for work, they're doing their job. What we're now seeing is states that were sort of more lockdown heavy, were less committed to making sure traditional unemployment systems were followed. They're hopping back into the pool now. So I think well before these federal programs expire in September, I think we're going to see the vast majority, if not all states that had waived them, put them back in place. So I, I think we're getting back to normal pretty quickly. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that a lot of states have really started to not only reopen, but also try to reopen their labor force, especially after last month's um, unemployment rating and job statistics. Although it did say there are over 8 million jobs in America right now that are open and waiting for people to step into those roles. So getting these that's people... That's a record high. It is, really. I didn't know that. Record high. I mean, and that's 
after a pandemic. I mean, that's insane that we have 8 million open jobs and we really need to get these people back into those roles. And you're right, you've mentioned incentives a lot here. I mean, use the unemployment program. It's for short-term temporary benefits to just get you into that next job. So let's get these folks back into those next jobs. A little bit of an aside, but Joe, these work search requirements, they're very particular to UI, but not to welfare programs in general. Are things that are similar like this in place in other programs? It's not exactly crazy to think that these are only in one government program. So the the way that unemployment was designed from the ground up, it was all about the reemployment. So the work search had to be a fundamental part of it from day one. And some the, states actually call their unemployment programs reemployment programs. I mean, I know that it's the re- Department of Reemployment in out of Florida. Am I right on that? Yeah, and shout out to South Dakota too. They also call it that. I think Tennessee might start. That might be one of their more recent changes, but I'd have to double check. But yeah, I know for a fact, Florida and South Dakota, they've got the right attitude. You know, if it's all about reemployment, you name it that way. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in terms of work search requirements for other programs, that's kind of the interesting fundamental split between the way these two programs are, uh, the way these two sort of families of programs that came out of uh, the federal government are designed, right? You have your more traditional welfare style programs like your, your food stamps and your Medicaid as opposed to unemployment. Unemployment started with work search, started with reemployment. With some of these other welfare programs, sort of the, the work aspect is sort of being added on later, which it's an, important, it's an important thing to add and it's an important thing to have involved, right? Because the single best indicator for an individual's success in life, economically, socially, even psychologically, right? The, one of the top indicators mm-hmm. of whether somebody is... Uh, happy individual is whether they have somewhere to go during the day and be productive, i.e. work. So adding these kind of work requirements onto other programs is so important, you know, because it's not just about benefiting the program. It's about benefiting the recipient or the claimant. Um, And and that's ultimately what it's all about. I agree. I agree, Joe. So with UI, unemployment, what can our listeners expect to come in the next month or two? I believe that the Unemployment bonus from the American Rescue Plan is set to expire in September. Um, If I'm wrong on that, correct me, Joe. But it is set to expire this year. But before that, you said more than 20 states have already opted out of this federal COVID bonus. Do you expect more to jump in on the ship? Absolutely. And give yourself credit, Victoria. September 6th, you were absolutely right. That's when it expires. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And as of the date of this recording, uh, which is May 19th, if I'm allowed to say that out loud. Sure, go um, ahead. (laughs) Perfect. Good. That gives me me room uh, to breathe in case I get some of these change in the future and I didn't predict them. No, New Hampshire just yesterday, late yesterday, announced that they were going to set a timeline. So it had been a few days since Governor Sununu in New Hampshire had said, you know, we're going to opt out before September, before the September end date. We just don't know when. They put in a, uh, a date to that, July 19th. So that was just yesterday. That brings the number up to, I don't remember whether it's 21 or 22. There are a few states where it would seem conventional wisdom will, means that they'll join the ranks of the states that have opted out pretty quickly. So some of our more recent additions were Texas, Oklahoma. We're looking at Nebraska, Florida. Florida is a big one. That's a high population state. Um, and it's, an, it's a state that had a lot of unemployment claims um, and was, you know, it's a big part of our economy. So we're keeping our eyes on that one. I expect, you know, 
I expect the governor's probably going to make a good decision there pretty soon. And then we move into some of the other states that you wouldn't think would be as traditionally obvious. So Kansas, Kentucky, if I had to guess on May, on May 19th, 2021, I'll, well, I'll put a guess for the, next five, for the next five states that opt out. We're going to probably see Nebraska, Florida, Kansas, Kentucky, and oh boy, this last one is a real, is a real flyer. Gosh, real dark on, horse Joe. pick. Give me your real pick. Dark, real, real dark picks. horse pick. Um, you know what? I'm a hopeful individual, Victoria. I'm going to say Wisconsin because I okay. think that is a state where they could really benefit from it. Well, guys, you heard it here first. We're going to take Joe's picks and we're going to see which of these states <laughs> end that UI bonus in their state, re-implement some work search requirements as well for those who already haven't re-implemented those. It looks like there are a lot of great state moves that have already happened and some more that are on the horizon that will kickstart our economy, get those folks back into those 8 million plus jobs, and really get back to what the unemployment program was all about pre-pandemic and also helping our country and our economy get back to pre-pandemic times as well. So Joe, thank you so much for joining the show today and for giving us your picks. I'm really curious. I'm going to hold you to it. Thank you. And you know, I don't know what I was worried about. This was totally painless. Totally painless. All right. Well, thanks, Joe. And thank you for all of our listeners out there um, for giving us a listen in today. And we'll see you next time on Built to Win. Thank you for listening to Built to Win, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit organization helping millions achieve the American dream. To learn more about our work or our experts, visit www.thefga.org and tell us what you think on Twitter at Built to Win Podcast. Views and opinions expressed by guests on Built to Win do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Foundation for Government Accountability and are not intended to advocate for or against the passage of any legislation or ballot initiative or to support or oppose any candidate for elected office.